From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. Many of us understand the familiar symptoms of depression. Typical feelings of low mood, difficulty sleeping, feeling amotivational, and more. These feelings associated with unipolar depression are heightened when combined with mania and bipolar depression and schizophrenia. Many people also understand that the current standard of care for these disorders is mitigating their effects. At McLean Hospital, Dr. Roscoe Brady and his research team are looking to determine the neurological basis for these symptoms. When there is so much we don't know about the brain, Dr. Brady hopes to better understand the biological difference between being symptomatic and being well. On this episode, Think Research producer Brendan Keegan sits down with Dr. Brady to discuss his work and how his team's approach to treatment can get patients to a state of wellness. Roscoe Brady is a clinical psychiatrist in the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Brady, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So I want to talk about some of the uh, research that you're doing, but first I want to get just some basics. So you study bipolar disorder um, and depression as well as schizophrenia. Can you describe what bipolar disorder is and how it's diagnosed? So bipolar disorder, which is also sometimes called manic depressive disorder, is, I would describe it as a heritable mood disorder that affects maybe 2% or 4% of the population. We think of it fundamentally as basically a disorder that is characterized by periods of time when the person with this disorder Uh, is depressed, and often quite severely so. And unlike people who have, say, unipolar depression, or what we usually think of as depression, people with bipolar disorder both uh, have periods of life when they are depressed and also periods of time in their life when they are manic. Um, I think a lot of people know about symptoms of depression at this point, specifically low mood, um, difficulty enjoying things, difficulty sleeping, uh, you know, generally feeling amotivational, and in extreme cases, you know, feeling suicidal, feeling like life isn't worth living. Those symptoms are all present in bipolar disorder when people with bipolar disorder are depressed. People with bipolar disorder also can become manic, uh, which is a very different kind of presentation that people with unipolar depression will never have typically. So when someone is manic, usually they describe the opposite of depressed moods. Basically, people will be either incredibly euphoric or at times actually incredibly irritable. They don't sleep well and typically don't need sleep. They have an enormous amount of energy. They will start lots of projects, sometimes completing them, but basically generally, you know, start more and more and more things, can be hyperactive. Also take a lot of risks, like indulge in behaviors they normally never would in terms of maybe using substances, doing things that could get them in a lot of trouble. And 
in extreme cases, people who are manic actually become psychotic, and by which I mean they're delusional. People have ideas that they are some sort of a, like a messianic figure or they have superpowers or divine powers that no one else has. You know, in its more extreme cases, you know, people who are manic and psychotic, you know, often will require hospitalization, you know, to treat. Uh, these disorders, as I said, they affect like anywhere from 2 to 4% of the population. Uh, they affect men and women equally, so basically 50-50 prevalence. Uh, their age of onset, um, people with this illness will often describe being symptomatic at around age 17 or 18, but often people won't be properly diagnosed or people, you know, physicians and family won't recognize the illness for what it is until maybe around age 30. Uh, we think of it as a lifelong illness. So people with this illness, you know, typically will experience mood episodes like the ones I described, as far as we can tell, for the duration of their life. So our current standard of care is basically to try to mitigate, you know, the presence of that disease. We don't have anything that's curative at this point, but we do have interventions that can change the course of the disease. But you can reasonably think of it as something that people live with for the rest of their lives, like a diagnosis of diabetes or something else like that. We were talking before uh, we started recording about the idea of um, imaging and looking for signs of depression in the brain. And you were saying that you can't tell by looking at someone's brain if they have depression or if they're bipolar. So could you talk a little bit about that? and um, how you do diagnose it. Yeah, so, so the, current, the current standard of care, you know, is that we diagnose bipolar disorder, we diagnose bipolar depression and mania and so on um, in a clinical interview. So I'm, uh, I'm trained as a psychiatrist, you know, mostly spend my time doing research at this point. But, um, you know, part of being a psychiatrist or being a physician nurse in general is recognizing this disorder. We recognize the disorder on the basis of symptoms so that a patient comes in either exhibiting these symptoms or telling us about a history of these symptoms. You know, we ask follow-up questions. We make sure that it's not something else that could, uh, you know, could mimic some of these symptoms. We ask questions about how long these symptoms have been going on. And we ask a lot of questions about family history. So this disorder is a very genetic disorder. Something like 80% of the risk of developing this disorder is heritable. So most people with bipolar disorder have a family history. But at the end of the day, you know, the, the like I said, it's standard of care is we ask questions. You know, we assess people based on an interview. We don't use laboratory tests to diagnose bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or other psychotic disorders. We also don't use neuroimaging at this point to diagnose the illness. There are studies out there, there are a lot of people actually putting a significant effort into trying to figure out can neuroimaging complement that interview? You know, is there a role for combining that interview I described, that history taking with some sort of test, with some sort of imaging to try to tease out what does the person in front of us, what disorder does they ha or do they have, what would be the best treatment. But there isn't anything, you know, that has kind of made that jump, I would say, from uh, basic research uh, of the disease or translational research into actual clinical practice at this point. Okay. And so the interviews that you do and the way you diagnose now, is that reliable? 
Somewhat, somewhat. So I would say this, that in any one interview, you know, there is always disagreement, you know, between interviewers about a diagnosis, especially, especially talking to someone who's not symptomatic. So basically sitting across from someone who has it, who has bipolar disorder based on history, based on their relating their history of symptoms to you. But in front of you in the room, they're not symptomatic. There is a lot of disagreement, you know, and there is a lot of ambiguity because when someone is describing experiences in the past that sound like a manic episode, um, you know, it, it's a lot gets lost in translation. So it's actually there is some disagreement from interviewer to interviewer, which is why in clinical practice, we don't usually simply use interview alone, right? Like basically we use interview after interview after interview over you know a long, longitudinal course of basically establishing care with someone. We get outside information from family. We talked and we actually ask about family history. Even with all those things said, you know, there is still disagreement. And particularly, particularly in people who haven't clearly had a manic episode, who maybe have had some manic symptoms. So think about, as I said, the average life course of this illness is symptoms at age 18 or so, 17 or 18. Diagnosis doesn't happen until 30. That's an entire decade or more in between where people have some symptoms, you know, of bipolar disorder, but it's not obviously that. They don't meet kind of the criteria we use. And so that is probably a time when there is a lot of room for using neuroimaging to try to tease apart. Is the person in front of us, are they going to go on to develop a bipolar disorder? And therefore, we would treat them very differently than someone who's not going to develop bipolar disorder. But we're not there yet. We have not actually established the utility of uh, any tool, including neuroimaging, for teasing apart, you know, like or, or really complementing the interview and history taking. And so I guess that brings us to your research. Um, working with imaging and you're, are you trying to figure that out? Are you trying to establish that, that neuroimaging component? So, so our goal, the imaging research I do is not, uh, so is not pre-diagnostic or is not aimed at uh, the diagnosis itself. The research that I do with bipolar disorder is very much aimed towards treatment, you know, of bipolar disorder when the diagnosis is established. Um, we have a number of different ways to treat people with bipolar disorder uh, from a pharmacologic perspective. You know, we have a lot of different medications available to us. We have a number of medications that have an FDA approval for treating bipolar disorder. Not a single one of them is actually derived from the pathology of the illness. So basically all the medications we used, we use in bipolar disorder because someone made a really a serendipitous discovery, you know, watching an animal People did painstaking work translating that to humans, and eventually for some compounds, we discovered there is some therapeutic efficacy, but it's not based on an understanding of the illness. It really is a combination of luck and some fortitude at doing these clinical trials. The work that we do is actually trying to pin down what is the, uh, what is the neurological, what is like the, the brain circuit or brain network basis for the symptoms we see in front of us. And the goal is if you can actually determine how the brain is different when someone is symptomatic, like when they're depressed or symptomatic and manic, 
or sim- or asymptomatic and euthymic, you know, in a place of wellness, if you can tell how these things are different from each other, maybe you can use that information to basically inform a treatment. You know, if I could tell you how the brain is different in these in the in a state of mania, then maybe we could go after that difference and try to move that person to a position of what I call euthymia or being asymptomatic or being well would be another way of putting it. But yes, it's all in people who have the diagnosis established. And now we're trying to figure out how to use, how to use those brain differences to actually uh, lead the way to an intervention. The studies that we're doing right now are not, uh, they're not evaluating intervention. It's really trying to look at people who basically are very symptomatic and then through some intervention, any intervention, basically, or just the you know the process of time, eventually get to a point where they're not symptomatic, you know, position of when they're well, and we're just asking the question, what's different, you know, within the brain of someone with bipolar disorder when they're really ill, really symptomatic, versus when that person is well. What's the difference between these two different states, you know, and a single person who always carries the disease their whole life? How is being manic different from being uh, being well, being euthymic? And trying to describe that first and foremost. The second, the stretch goal after that is basically to ask, can we take those differences and basically manipulate them, basically move someone from a position of being ill to a position of being well on the basis of making those brain changes ourselves? through whatever mechanism, be it medications, be it psychotherapy, or so transcranial magnetic stimulation is a method that we've been working with recently. But yes, just trying to understand illness and wellness within the disorder. Okay, so let's go back to, um, let's talk about schizophrenia, because that's, uh, you said is the more translational Mm -hmm. piece. Um, And maybe you could talk about the, just the study design, because you you said, when we spoke uh, before the recording, um, that the study design is a little different. You're tracking, and you mentioned this just now, you're tracking people longitudinally through when they're symptomatic to when they're not. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe you could talk about how that translational aspect plays out and a little bit touch on the study design. Absolutely. So the, so schizophrenia, and I'll say one minute or so in here about kind of background about it. The schizophrenia is a, it's a psychotic disorder that just like bipolar disorder, we diagnose on the basis of interview, on the basis of information about the person's behavior. It affects, again, somewhere between 1% and 2% of the population, maybe a little bit higher than that. Um, we think of that as another disease that has its average, you know, that basically we start to recognize symptoms of schizophrenia around age 18. We think of it as a lifelong illness. So basically it is a chronic condition and is associated with really kind of enormous uh, morbidity and loss of function. So my, the latest estimate I've seen is that you know, that the lost uh, economic potential, the uh, healthcare costs associated with schizophrenia cost about $60 billion a year in the U.S. alone. We diagnose schizophrenia on the basis of symptoms. So specifically, people who describe experiences of hallucinations, you know, seeing things, hearing things that aren't based in reality, being delusional, so having bizarre beliefs, you know, conspiracy theories, ideas of being monitored, things paranoia 
and also just thought disorganization, people who really are just profoundly disorganized and cannot organize their thoughts together, cannot make long-term planning. We also, uh, we use those symptoms to diagnose the illness, to differentiate people with schizophrenia from people with other disorders. Interestingly enough, when you ask what is most debilitating, you know, what symptoms in schizophrenia um, cause the most disability, predict uh, the the highest predictive power that someone's going to be unemployed, is going to live in group housing and so on, it's actually not those symptoms that are so recognizable. It's actually a set of symptoms that are a part and parcel with schizophrenia that are a little more subtle. So what we call the negative symptoms in schizophrenia. These things include amotivation, anhedonia, so just not enjoying anything, not looking forward to things, um, poor organization in terms of planning out like long-term goals, and also uh, expressive deficits. So basically the, what we're doing, looking at each other and responding to each other, schizophrenia, that disease really impairs that kind of social communication. When you put all those things together, those symptoms, and together we call them negative symptoms because they represent like a loss or a deficit, you know, they are profoundly impairing. They really seem to cause most of the disability in schizophrenia, even if they're, like I said, not the, they're not the most recognizable symptoms. We have done work trying to understand what is the brain, uh, how about this, the biological basis for negative symptoms. Like what are the brain circuits that are dysfunctional in schizophrenia that cause those symptoms? Uh, what is like the, the circuit or network basis for these things? The, the study, you know, the study design is basically take, you know, we've taken a large group of people with schizophrenia recruited as part of a multi-site trial done a number of uh, questionnaires, you know, basically interview-based questions trying to, like, trying to really get at the depth of how impairing these symptoms are for individuals, and then basically taking these individuals through an MRI scan, looking at brain uh, communication, connectivity, and ask the question, where do we see the level of impairment from these symptoms? Where does that seem to predict brain circuit activity or brain circuit communication? And we found that. So basically we found that uh, disconnectivity within a set network in the brain, which I can talk more about, really seems to predict how impaired people will be in terms of these things like amotivation and not enjoying things and not being able to plan. The second part of that experiment, and this is all done you know, as a partnership between myself and the Department of Psychiatry, Beth Israel, and Mark Halko, who's an investigator in the Department of Neurology, is basically to take that brain network basis of those symptoms and ask a straightforward question, which is, we see brain activity in these regions. It seems to correlate with these, with these symptoms. Does it cause those symptoms? You know, you can imagine that the, this network dysfunction causes the symptoms. You can also imagine it's basically, it's an epiphenomena. Like there's something else that gives rise to both, but they're not actually causing the symptoms themselves. The way you'd want to test this relationship is look at that network and change it. And if it really does, if dysfunction in the network really does give rise to negative symptoms, and you can make that network basically look more uh, normal, then the symptoms should get better, right? Mm -hmm. 
and that's and that's what we've done again through kind of heroic efforts you know on Mark's part and a number of other people all working together basically have used a technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation that lets you non-invasively you know basically there's no no needles no surgery involved change brain activity and change brain activity uh, in a way that seems to endure. So not just for like 10 minutes after after this one of these TMS sessions, but in a way that it seems to endure weeks later. Change that brain activity and then see, do symptoms improve in the course of that change? And the answer is yes. Um, so it's, it is thrilling for me because... We have many, many, many studies in psychiatry, in neuroimaging in general, where people have done experiments like the first part, you know, doing imaging, looking at symptoms, seeing correlation, you know, oh, maybe this network is involved, maybe that network is involved. But there is almost nothing in the literature of basically really empirically testing that relationship, you know, really just testing the simple notion that if you see a problem in a circuit, if you correct that circuit, then, you know, your symptoms should get better. And that's exactly what we see. Yeah. Was there more you wanted to say about the specifics of the the network? I mean, I think it's really interesting that you can identify the area of the brain that is, is it malfunctioning? Is it mm-hmm. like the, could you describe a little bit about uh, what's going on? I, I would love to. I would love to. So, so... For people who are um, so people who are not familiar with neuroanatomy, um, there is a region of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which you know it's you can tell from the kind of Latin roots, it is forward. It's in the forebrain. It's a little bit off to the side. It is a brain region that has been implicated in an enormous number of uh, cognitive tasks. Like anytime someone is asked to do like, you know, any kind of uh, any test of executive functioning, any kind of test of memory, there are lots of different things you can ask someone to do and you see activity in the DLPFC. And it's a brain region that is, I think, you know, it is uh, very well developed in humans much less so in primates, and there's debate about whether it even exists in rodents and so on. So it's, you know, in that terms, it's developmentally a newer structure. So it is um, involved in lots of cognitive tasks. It is unique. It is particularly disconnected from another brain region in people with schizophrenia who have these negative symptoms. What I'm going to say next is the part that is really not very intuitive. We see in our study that the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the best predictor of how symptomatic someone is, is how disconnected the DLPFC is from the cerebellum. So the cere- so why is that counterintuitive? Because because if if anyone here exactly if anyone has a sort of neurology background, the cerebellum, it's a structure basically at the you know at the the rear part of the brain you know, a small structure that is low in the skull towards the back of the head that is involved and has been long known to be involved in motor coordination. So all the things that you and I do that involve like fine motor movements. So I pick up a water bottle, I twist off the cap. That requires uh, motor cortex. So it requires basically part of the brain that controls my hands, controls my arms. And also requires fine-tuning of this other structure, the cerebellum. So if I had a cerebellar lesion, you'd watch me reach across, and basically I wouldn't be able to hold this bottle steady. I'd have an enormous amount of trouble getting the cap off. Everything you can think of that involves fine motor control 
the cerebellum we know is fine tuning those movements. And that's been established for a long period of time in animals, in humans, in primates. You know, that, that is the role of the cerebellum. More recently, more recently, and I guess I date back to the 1990s, uh, Harvard Medical School researcher, neurologist, famous, uh, famous individual, Jeremy Schmaman, he proposed the cerebellum is not just coordinating motor activity. He said, and he proposed, the cerebellum is actually involved in coordinating many, many different brain processes. So that could include motor movement, but also could include basically, um, you know, thinking through difficult problems, doing planning. Basically, the idea of the cerebellum doesn't just fine-tune movement. It actually fine-tunes cognition and thinking. And he proposed this idea called the cognitive dysmetria idea, the idea that people who uh, who basically have a cerebellar lesion, you see a pattern of deficits in the way that they think and the way that they plan and the way they kind of execute tasks that shows the cerebellum clearly does more than just control your hands. And he proposed that maybe, maybe cerebellar fine control of cognition is a key component of schizophrenia. And so he put that idea out back in the 1990s. Um, Nancy Andreessen, who was a famous figure in the field of psychiatry, did several studies kind of uh, gathering some evidence that that really indeed might be the case, that some of the symptoms we associate with schizophrenia might be a problem of the cerebellum. The nice thing about our study you know, which is under review right now, the one I'm talking about, is it really kind of ties all these things together to show that indeed, not only is it hypothetical, but there really does seem to be a clear role for the cerebellum in, in, in its communication with uh, this forebrain structure, the DOPFC, that that discommunication really seems to be uh, a key component of the schizophrenia symptoms. And the last part, if you reverse that, if you can basically, through this manipulation, get the cerebellum communicating with this other structure properly, you can actually make these symptoms better. And so that's what the magnetic, transmagnetic mm -hmm. um, treatment does, is it gets these two regions communicating with each exactly. other. Exactly, and in a way which we can actually measure. So the, one, of the, one of the great things is you can actually, that experiment, those experiments, they're done uh, within individuals where we basically, they undergo a brain scan, you know, at baseline, and you can see basically how well these two regions are coordinating with each other, right? You can see the communication back and forth. And then they receive, so TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, basically targeted at the cerebellum, you know, at this region that really seems to be profoundly kind of disconnected. They get this treatment twice a day, for uh, five days, so a total of 10 treatments. And before they get those treatments, we also ask them about these symptoms, you know, really try to assess how impaired people are. They get these 10 treatments, then they get another brain scan, and they be, we go back and ass assess them again for how severe are these symptoms. The really wonderful thing is you can see very, it's a really uh, strikingly robust effect, you know, like if for stats people, you know, the, the Pearson's correlation coefficient is like 0.985, that the amount that you improve communication between these regions really almost perfectly predicts how much better people get between uh, comparing pre versus post TMS. Um, 
as I said, not, not, you know, I say this not to try to promote the research, but there really is not a whole lot in psychiatry where we have an intervention where we can actually point to like a circuit or a network that really seems to basically underlie symptoms, like demonstrably underlie symptoms, and also is a target for intervention, right? We have interventions that work, and usually the way that they work is a black box. This would be an example of a treatment where it is not a black box. We can actually without even, I could say this, without even interviewing the individual, I could predict how much better those symptoms would be on the basis of that brain scan. So I want to talk more about generally about the research. And um, I think, you know, one of the interesting parts of the research you're doing is you're dealing with people who are um, sort of maybe it's not a typical study. They're not the typical study subject. Some of them are in a manic episode or they have severe schizophrenia and it raises questions about, you know, consent and how do you deal with that? How do you deal with consent for people who maybe in a different realm would not be considered fully uh, capable? Oh, yeah. No, this is, I think this is this is really a critical question, right? So, so and, and you're speaking with someone who, you know, is a... Is a strident believer that like I really do think patient-centered research or basically human participant research really is going to probably lead the way when it comes to psychiatric uh, research you know the role of animal models for these for these disorders is absolutely necessary and if you talk to people who basically do animal models of psychiatric illness I think a lot of them would echo what I'm saying which is we really, we're not going to develop, you know, widespread new treatments until we get good animal models. The way we're going to get good animal models is working with patients, you know, and actually figuring out what are the brain regions that are dysfunctional, what are the circuits that are dysfunctional, how can we get, then take that to animals and kind of study interventions. To get back to your question, that whole process involves working with patients, right? Working with people, or should I say maybe more broadly, not necessarily our patients, but it involves working with people who have these diagnoses, right? People who have psychotic disorders. And as you mentioned, some of the studies that we do basically involve, you know, or actually all of them involve people who are symptomatic, you know? So in the schizophrenia studies, people who are hallucinating, people who are delusional, people who basically are impaired by these symptoms. In the bipolar study, you know, we actually study people who are hospitalized on an inpatient unit, uh, you know, basically who are so ill that they're not in outpatient care anymore and they're on one of these units and they're really ill. Can that person be, you know, legitimately be a participant in a research study? You know, and so we have done a lot of work, and a lot of this predates me. So I'll give, you know, credit to other other investigators. So uh, my mentor at uh, McLean Hospital, Dost Unger, uh, is head of the psychotic disorders division there. And he had done a lot of work before I even started working with him trying to figure out, are there ways that patients on these units, patients who are ill, that are there ways for them to participate in research that aren't taking advantage of them? And so we have come up, you know, with an enormous amount of work from uh, McLean Hospital and partners, you know, the IRB, you know, at these institutions, and particularly working with some of the chairs there, like Benjamin Silverman is one of the chairs for partners who has a particular interest in psychiatric research, in coming up with protocols that really do let people with these illnesses participate even when they're ill. 
to walk you through the process, you know, for someone on one of these units to participate in the research, what happens is basically they are admitted to the unit. They have to be there on a voluntary basis. So that if someone is there against their, if someone is so ill that there's real threat to their safety, you know, they have to be in the hospital, but they don't want to be there. We don't approach those people, like absolutely not. If a person is in the hospital and they recognize the hospital is the right place for them to get help and they're there voluntarily, those are people that we can approach, but we don't. We actually speak with the physicians who are taking care of them. When the physician's taking care of them, say, I think this person is in a position where they can have that conversation. Like they can understand what your study is about. They can understand what the risks and benefits are. You know, when the physician taking care of them feels like they're in that spot, then someone from the team taking care of them will ask the patient, would you be interested in hearing about a research study? If they say yes at that point, that's the point when we go and speak to them. And so at that point, we describe the study to them. The stuff that we do, you know, uh, from for patients in that setting, it is minimal risk, you know, uh, in the sense that like the, the actual threat of physical harm is basically consistent with the risk of harm that we all face just living day to day, right? So the risk of getting hurt in MRI scan, it's not zero, but it's so minimal, we don't consider it to be like, you know, more than minimal risk. But because we're doing this study in a really, in a population that's potentially vulnerable, right? Um, we don't wanna take advantage of someone being in a state where they don't understand what the study is. We describe the study and we actually have a, I guess I'll call it a test, a questionnaire that asks people about the study, trying to determine, do they get it? Do they understand what we're asking to do? We ask them, you know, what are we studying? What are we going to ask you to do? What are the methods? And in more specifically, like, do you understand that like you can say no? Like, do you understand that like your care is going to proceed whether you say yes or no? Saying yes will not you know, you will not leave the hospital faster if you say, agree. You will not be kept here longer if you disagree. Someone who doesn't get those questions correct, we don't work with them. You know, someone has to be in a position where they truly have what we would call informed consent. But if someone can get to that point, you know, where they're, again, they're still you know, often very symptomatic, but they can understand what we're asking them to do. We understand that there is no real, like, immediate benefit to them. Um, but they can contribute, you know, in a really substantial, like an enormous way, in a truly unique way, um, then yes, like then things proceed from there. And we've been very fortunate that we have met many people who are, again, I would say profoundly ill, who still understand what we're trying to do. They understand that this isn't a study that we can do somewhere else. You know, we can't find people with bipolar disorder who are well, who are in other other places of treatment, we can't do this kind of work with them and get the answers we need. And they agree to help out. And and the second part of those studies is we bring these people back. You know, so people who are acutely ill in the hospital, we then bring them back. You know, months, maybe a year or so later, when they're well, and ask them to again contribute their time in a way which, again, just like everything else, is completely voluntary. And it's been amazing because people really will come back. Often, you know, overcoming a lot of obstacles. You know, including you know some, uh, you know, the awkwardness of asking someone to come back to a place that, like, you know, is associated with a real low spot in their life. You know, they still soldier through and come back, and it's um, it's touching. You talked earlier about these 
disorders being lifelong and you're managing them like diabetes Mm -hmm. or something. Um, So when you see somebody who comes back and is, would you describe them as well? They're cured or it's more like they've managed it into a a state that they can function? I I think that that last way of describing it is probably the best way to describe it because our experience with these illnesses, both schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, is that to the best, the best of our ability to determine, they really are, for the average person, a lifelong diagnosis. And the few studies that have looked at the life course of these illnesses, um, like someone with bipolar disorder, you know, if you ask how often, you know, how many times will they become depressed, you know, for like, you know, a period of weeks at a time, how often does that happen in a given year at age 30, at age 40, at age 60? The numbers pretty much stay the same. Right. So it really does seem to be a lifelong illness. However, however, as time progresses, most people have a better handle on what they can do to do just what you described. That is manage the illness to really kind of mitigate the illness, to control the illness, you know, through a variety of different methods, you know, some of which involve just I'll call it prophylaxis. Like what can I do in terms of getting a good night's sleep? What can I do in terms of exercise, in terms of taking medications, in terms of engaging in psychotherapy, avoiding things that are detrimental like recreational drugs? What are the things that I can do as a patient to avoid becoming symptomatic again? Or if in spite of all those efforts, someone does become more symptomatic, what can I do to like, what can I do to compensate? What can I do to kind of head this off, you know, and make things better before they get worse? You know, for most people with time comes experience in exactly those in those realms. And so ideally for many people over time, the illness, the management of the illness gets more effective. But fundamentally, like there none of these things, I've never seen a cure. You know, I reasonably expect someone who kind of once we've once it becomes clear they have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, once it becomes clear they have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, you know, if someone asks me, is this something that I live with the rest of my life? I think the evidence points to yes, you know, and the answer is yes. And also we're going to see what we can do to make it a truly fulfilled life with that present in your life as well. What is your measure of success in this research? Oh, that that is... Um, okay, so speaking to me uh, with like a researcher hat on, right? Like, you know, my measure of kind of, this starts to get to a question of personal success, right? You know, for me, getting us to a point where we understand, you know, at the level of like, at the level of a brain, right? The level of like substructures in the brain. It's some level below watching a person in front of you behave at some level, you know, kind of some level uh different than that, understanding what are the brain circuits that actually mediate this illness? What are the things that we should be targeting to make this illness better? You know, identifying those things would be uh, critical, right? And I think it's like a shared goal across like anyone doing psychiatric research, like, you know, especially anyone doing kind of biological research, you know, doing neuroimaging, that sort of thing, trying to understand what's the basis of the disease at a level that we can measure and we can study. That would be personally very gratifying. 
a second step beyond that, you know, which we've started to kind of, you know, started to do to some extent, we basically be able to demonstrate that that knowledge somehow lends itself to intervention. So, you know, in addition to being a researcher, you know, I'm, I'm a clinician, right? Like I see people with these disorders frequently, you know, on the units and in our outpatient clinic. Um, I would really like to do more than just understand the disease as an entity, but actually show that we have an understanding that lends itself to an intervention. You know, we can leverage that understanding into something that actually modifies the disease. One last thing I have to add to that, though, is, and this is the real stretch goal, you know, so goals one and two, understanding the disease and modifying the disease based on understanding, you know, I, I, I bet we can do it. Like, I feel actually really confident in a way which I didn't some years ago. I'll tell you the third goal, and this is the goal that like, you know, if you brought in a number of people with these disorders to sit on either side of me, they would share this, I think, or you really emphatically agree. It's not enough to just move people from a position of being symptomatic to not symptomatic, right? So all the research I do is looking at someone who's symptomatic, what's different, how can we leverage that, how can we get to the place of wellness? It isn't enough because the people with these disorders who are sitting here, they tell you, you know, for a number of them, yeah, some of my symptoms have gotten better and I still don't have a job. I still don't have a family. I still live in like, you know, I still live with my parents. I still live in a group setting. So the code phrase or the term we use in, in the literature would be functional recovery. So not just recovering from symptoms, but actually getting back to where people were before they got ill. And these illnesses are devastating. You know, schizophrenia, like is, it's well understood, you know, just it has enormous, enormous disability associated with it. Bipolar disorder, people walk around with an idea, you know, or non-clinicians walk around with the idea that, you know, it's maybe not as devastating. In truth, someone with bipolar disorder who has a manic episode and gets hospitalized, you know, only 40% of them, you know, a year after that hospitalization, only 40% have gotten back to where they came from in terms of getting back to school, getting back to work, getting back to independent housing. Um, and a lot of those people never will. And so the point I'm getting to is we have some understanding of symptoms. Um, we have some understanding of what interventions can help, but we don't understand why they work for the most part. And one final goal is like we don't fully understand how to translate symptom improvement into people actually basically having fulfilled lives, into you know basically reclaiming all the things that people without these illnesses reasonably expect. I would describe that as kind of the third, I don't want to call it a stretch goal, but it's the ultimate goal of all this research. Thank you very much for joining us. It's been great to have this conversation with you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Next time on Think Research. So here we would like to be able to study the brain in these unsupervised, let's say, settings where brain activity is recorded as we perform our everyday tasks and uh, we go about our day. Well, these kind of recordings are really big data. Dr. Katarina Stamoulis of Boston Children's Hospital discusses the possibilities and challenges ahead with the next generation of brain data. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, 
SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.